Hey folks, I'm Scott Weingart and this is the MCrit Podcast. Today we have an episode I am super excited for you to hear. I've been waiting to do it for a long time. I'm joined by Joe Chaffin. He is the Blood Bank Guy. He does a podcast called Blood Bank Guy Essentials. I've been listening to it for topics relevant to EM and critical care for a long time now. And what you will find, and you know this if you listen to podcasts, is you feel like you get to know the host, even though you've never met them. And uh, if my intuitions based on listening are correct, then Joe is an awesome educator. He is humble, he is humorous, and he has a mission to teach transfusion medicine to everybody. And I think he succeeds at that mission. Joe is a pathologist. He is a specialist in transfusion medicine, aka he is a blood banker. He is currently in California, the CMO of the Lifestream Blood Center. I've been asking for him to come on to the podcast to talk a little bit about blood bank basics because I think people misunderstand them. Uh, So we had a great conversation. Uh, During the same session that we recorded what you're going to listen to, uh, Joe actually interviewed me for his podcast, and that went up last week. So if you like what you hear now, then listen to that as well, and then by all means continue to listen to the relevant episodes on Joe's podcast. So without further delay, let's get right to it. Blood Bank Essentials with Joe Chaffin. Okay, so the first thing I want to talk about is very basic, I think, from the blood banker's perspective, but I've just seen so many residents and fellows in emergency medicine and critical care not have a basic understanding. So let's go right to the simplest thing. Uh, The nurse draws a type and screen from a patient and sends it down to the blood bank. What is actually happening on this blood sample? Well, it all goes in a black box, and no, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> so the deal with type and screens is is pretty simple, really. All we're doing when we do a type and screen is we're doing uh, essentially three tests. We're doing an ABO check. In other words, we're testing to see what ABO type the, the, the patient is. We're checking for the RH uh, type, and that's really, for us, we call it the RHD type because there's about 50 different RH antigens, but we're checking the main one, the D antigen, the one that determines whether you're positive or negative. And then we're doing what we call an antibody screen, and that's the screen part of the name, obviously. The, that part is what seems mysterious a lot of times to, to clinicians and, and people that don't work in blood banks. The screen is simply looking for the presence of antibodies not related to the ABO system. Uh, We expect ABO antibodies to be there. Everyone learned that in high school. If you're type A, then you have antibodies against B and et cetera. But the antibody screen is specifically looking for things not related to ABO. The most common antibodies that we find are antibodies against that RH antigen, for example, the main one, the D antigen, but we also see antibodies against many of the other antigens in the uh, in the RH system, against the Kell system, the Duffy system, the Kid system, all kind of magical sounding names, but they're just other antigens that are present on, on the red blood cells. That, the presence or absence of non-ABO antibodies really makes all the difference in how the blood bank is going to be able to serve you and get products to you rapidly. Because once that antibody screen is positive, everything changes and we have a lot more work to do to make sure we get you compatible blood. Now, is this automated or is anyone having to like manually do this stuff? So in most blood banks nowadays, uh, there are automated platforms that are available to do that antibody screen. In fact, there are automated platforms available to do the ABO and RH. And those platforms, generally speaking, it's not universally true, but generally speaking, they're not super for 
immediate bang, I got to have it right now results. The, in, in many cases, those results, uh, when you need them in a real big hurry, they're just, they're still done manually with test tubes, but that, that's it, it, the, there are, there are some, some of those platforms, I should be clear. Some of those platforms do have an, an immediate, uh, kind of on demand. I can throw a sample in urgently and get it done rapidly. So I, I don't want to say it's universally that way, but it, it varies by blood bank. Got it. Okay, so that's type and screen. Now, here's mm -hmm. where the real confusion starts, I think, in the minds of many emergency practitioners. Mm -hmm. What is type and cross or just cross match, depending on how you're ordering it in your blood bank? What does that actually mean and what does that entail? So really, the type and cross is essentially the type and screen plus one more test. And the great thing about the type and cross, and this is something that not everyone appreciates, the great thing about a type and cross is that how we do the type and cross is very dependent on the results that we find on the antibody screen. So for example, if as is the case with most patients, they do not have any of those non-ABO antibodies that I mentioned earlier, then we are able to do an abbreviated cross match. And, and that's something that, that people aren't aware of. There are, there are several different types of cross match, really three main types of cross match. And the one that we can use for your patient really depends on what is present on the test before, which is the antibody screen. So if a patient does not have any of those ABO or non-ABO antibodies, then we're able to do to take one of two different pathways. Then they're essentially equivocal, uh, pardon me, they're essentially equivalent tests, these two pathways. The first one is what's called the immediate spin cross match. The immediate spin cross match is about the most simple, basic test you will ever find. And we simply take a sample of the donor red cells from the unit that we're about to transfuse a sample of the patient's serum or plasma, mix them together, put them on a centrifuge, spin it, look for incompatibility. The reason we can do that and the reason we can do that quickly is because we already know there are no antibodies from the antibody screen. So the immediate spin cross match is simply a final ABO check. We want to check for ABO incompatibility and those antibodies react right away, very quickly. So it's a very simple test. It takes literally moments to do. I mean, okay, I don't want to, I don't want to overpromise, but it, it is really a very, very, very rapid test. So that's option one. Option two, if the patient also has none of those uh, non-ABO antibodies, is something that's growing in popularity in the United States and around the world, and that is called the computer cross-match. The computer cross-match, like the immediate spin cross-match, is simply an ABO check. And, and essentially, the computer cross-match is even faster it, is, it requires several things, a negative antibody screen or no significant antibodies, uh, as I mentioned before. Um, the patient has to have been typed on more than one occasion, so we're very confident that this ABO and RH type is, is correct for this patient. And then third, you have to have a computer system that's validated to, to do the process. And blood banks everywhere are getting this in place more and more. It is simply a matter of telling the computer, here's this, don't, here's this patient, I need two units of red cells and the, and the computer compares the ABO and RH type to the donor units that are in inventory, here you go. Here's those two units. It is about as immediate as you can get. And it is, it's really changed things. It's revolutionized, revolutionized the way that we do uh, type and crosses. Now, 
the last test, Scott, is the, or the last way that we we do this is the unfortunate situation where someone does have one of those non-ABO antibodies. So if someone has, for example, uh, an anti-D, an anti-little e, an anti-big K or Kel as, as people call it, Duffy A, things like that, then unfortunately we actually have to do an extended cross-match which requires incubation time, it requires centrifugation time, it requires mixing and reading, and generally speaking you're talking anywhere from 20 minutes to a half hour at best before products are available in that situation. Fantastic. Now that was wonderfully stated, uh, but I think we we missed, I think, a more basic level that you just take as a given, but I think people might not understand, which is <laughs> when you're telling the blood bank, uh, you know, just to type and cross for four units of blood, they are uh -huh. actually taking four units off the shelf, unless it's a computer cross match. They are mm -hmm. checking each one against the patient's uh, blood. And those units now are kind of stolen away from the other patients in the hospital until some set period of time where either you told the blood bank we don't need it anymore or they automatically go back in circulation. Is that true? That is an excellent point, and it is, and it is absolutely true. The, it, one of the reasons that we encourage people, and part of the reason I went into the differences between the different types of cross matches, one of the reasons that we encourage people when you're in a situation where you're not sure someone is going to be transfused or you don't have a relatively high degree of, of confidence that the patient is going to be transfused, that doing a type and screen is a great first step because it gets us to the point, especially if it's negative, where the next step is simple and then the next step will be very, very rapid. Um, because when we do, when we do a cross match, you're absolutely correct. We reserve whatever number of units you've asked for. We reserve those for your patients. So they are functionally out of our inventory. They're still there, of course, but they're functionally out of our inventory. Um, and it makes it, it if people over or order cross matches, then suddenly we, we're in a situation where we've got a whole bunch of units, but they're, but many of them are tied up and we may not have units available for the next patient coming in the door. And that can be an absolutely a big challenge. So you're hundred percent right, Scott, the use of the type, the use of the cross match, the use of requesting specific units for cross match should be done intelligently and judiciously. And if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, you folks actually track as a quality measure how many cross matches are done versus how many of those units are actually given. Is that true? You're correct. That's called the, the cross match to transfuse ratio. It's a very classic and uh, time honored test or time honored indicator used in transfusion committees all around the world. Quite honestly, it's not necessarily the greatest uh, measure and we're starting to use some different measures going forward, but it is absolutely one of the things that we use to indicate how efficiently clinicians are ordering cross matches. And this drives me crazy because I see my residents, they don't really understand this, and they'll just take a GI bleed patient who's relatively stable, and they'll type and cross eight units of blood, four units of FFP, and I know, I know that none <laughs> of that's going to be used, and then they never give it back. You know, they never, they just wait for it to expire because the people upstairs don't either, you know, understand what it means or they just don't bother to tell the blood bank, we don't actually need this. The patient's done. They've been scoped. There's nothing bleeding anymore. Um, so I really actively encourage my residents not to uh, really cross match blood unless they really are convinced they need it. And part of my thinking, you tell me if I'm incorrect, is that if the patient does suddenly need blood, for the most part, unless they do have those antibodies, I'm fine with just getting type-specific blood. Now, tell me if I'm wrong or right on that. 
Well, realistically, in most cases, you're not going to need to go type-specific blood. You, if the antibody screen is negative, the two options for final ABO check, the immediate spin cross-match and the computer cross-match, are so rapid that, generally speaking, you won't have to do a an, an uncross-matched emergency release blood. You, you will be able to have cross-matched blood right away, and, and it's really, really rapid. That's That's the thing, that last part that you just said is I, I completely agree with that. And that's something that clinicians miss a lot, how quickly we can get them blood in a patient who's already been type and screened. Now, based on everything we've said, I kind of would like to know if the patient did have antibodies on that mm-hmm. screen, because that may change my desire to have some cross-match blood, because I don't want to wait in real time as the patient's exsanguinating those 30 minutes at the minimum. Uh, but I've never been fed back, this patient has antibodies, until I've actually requested blood. So what, what's your thinking on that? I want to be, uh, I want to be delicate here because I don't want to speak for all blood banks. Obviously I'm, I'm speaking for myself, but I would say that I believe that it is good practice for a blood bank to communicate that to the ordering clinician when there is an antibody, uh, to communicate that rapidly. I, I can tell you that in, uh, in blood bank world, generally speaking, when someone orders a type and screen and they f- and we find an antibody in our heads or sometimes even physically, we convert that to a type and cross. In other words, we identify the antibody and we are looking for units that are negative for that particular antigen, target antigen of the antibody or antibodies in some cases. And we are, we are looking to have units available. Now, it, that communication in my opinion, should go to the clinician immediately so the clinician is aware of what they're dealing with. Love it. Love it. Okay, let's summarize that really quickly. So now you know what a type and screen is. You know you're always sending that on patients who may need blood products. And if the patient does not have antibodies, it is my contention that in almost every case, there is no reason to cross-match products for this patient. You're just stealing units from the blood supply that could be used for other patients. You never remember to give them back to the blood supply. I, I just don't see any reason for it. And from what Joe is saying, uh, it sounds like uh, there is no good reason for it. So just don't do it. On the other hand, if the patient does have antibodies, you want to establish with your blood bank that you want to know that information as soon as they know it. And therefore, you will have the capability on those patients, if you think there's a reasonable chance they will need blood, to cross-match products for them. Because in this situation, the difference between having cross-match products and not could be a long period of time or having to make the tough choice of giving a patient non-cross-match products that they may react to. Hopefully this clears it up. If not, put it in the comments. Okay, now let me give you a scenario. You have a patient who they're not dying, but they definitely need blood. And this oftentimes will have a GI bleed. Their um, hemoglobin is five. Their blood pressure is soft, but they're not profoundly hypotensive yet. And we ask for two units. The blood bank tells us the patient has antibodies. It's going to be a while. Okay, no worries. We'll, we'll, we'll temporize them. But now all of a sudden the patient gets worse. I really want the blood products now. What is the risk of giving a patient with antibodies blood that we don't know yet whether it's compatible? It's a great question, and it's a deep question, Scott. It's it's unfortunately not one that lends itself to a, a, a five-second answer, but I'll, I'll do my best to, to kind of characterize it for you. 
generally speaking, any transfusion, regardless of the, of the clinical situation, is a weighing of the risks versus the benefits. And at least it should be. Anytime anyone decides to transfuse anyone anywhere, the reason that that transfusion should occur is because the, the, the benefits of transfusing this patient outweigh the risks of transfusing this patient. That's true if someone has a negative antibody screen, if everything goes perfectly, versus someone who you don't have, you don't have uh, even a, a, a blood type yet. It, the, the decision, in my opinion, still should be based on risk versus benefit. In the situation that you've described, when you have someone who has an antibody which is currently being worked up and no one knows what it is yet, you have a decision to make. And, and the great thing, in my opinion, is that you don't have to make that decision alone. And you shouldn't, in my opinion, make that decision alone. Of, of course, obviously, if, if, the, if the patient is completely crashing and you have no options, you get on the phone and you have someone get on the phone and say, get us blood, we don't care. But realistically, in that setting, if you can have you can talk with the blood bank you can talk every blood bank has a physician who is overseeing it now i will grant you that in some cases those physicians are not necessarily blood bank experts but you can always get access to someone who can help you with this discussion if you have a moment to have it but if you don't and you're in that scenario where your patient starts to crash we don't have yet have compatible blood the, the decision, in my opinion, is simple. If the patient is going to die without a transfusion, you give the patient the transfusion, you deal with whatever consequences there may be. And to the genesis, I think, of your question, what is the risk? I can't put a risk on it because the risk will vary depending on what the antibody is. Some of those incompatible antibodies will cause immediate dramatic hemolysis. Of course, ABO is famous for that, but other non-ABO antibodies can do that as well. And if that's the case, that's the case. You deal, you, you deal with a, tr a transfusion reaction, which everyone is afraid of for good reason. They're scary things. But if, if the decision is my patient's going to die without a transfusion or I'm going to try and treat a, a potentially hemolytic transfusion reaction afterwards, then in my opinion, you transfuse the patient and save their life. Fantastic answer. You know, uh, we had John Hess at our blood bank uh, where I did my trauma training. And mm -hmm. his contention, and I think it's supported by some literature, I'm curious to see what you think, is as the patient gets sicker and sicker, their chances of an immune response actually drop. Their immune system kind of goes to crap as they get closer to death, and the likelihood of these uh, non-ABO antibody reactions is probably less in those patients. What's your thoughts on that? That is probably true. I'm, I'm not aware, well, I was going to say I'm not aware of any, uh, you know, excellent objective data to, to support that. But quite frankly, Scott, um, something that you'll find, and, and when I heard you do your interview with, with Dr. Holcomb in your episode 144 about the proper study, he said something that's absolutely true. In general, transfusion medicine is plagued by a lack of, of objective data. Uh, we, we do not have a ton of great data for much of anything that we do. We're trying to change that. But realistically, there, all across our field in transfusion medicine, there's not a lot of great data. Back to your question, I believe Dr. Hess is correct. Uh, I, based on my clinical experience, I would think that was true. And I, I have been in that situation, have never seen an issue. That's, of course, anecdotal. Um, but I believe that that is a logical and reasonable thing to assume. Fantastic. Well, let's pull back a little bit. And what is your stance on type-specific platelets? This is a back-and-forth debate that we go through in the trauma world, and I'm sure you probably go through in the blood banking world as well. Should they be type-specific? Well, should they be type-specific? Of course. I think that every 
every transfusion is best done with type-specific products. Unfortunately, we don't live in the world where type-specific products are always available. I don't think anyone would argue that giving someone who is group A, group A platelets, is, is anything other than the right choice. But unfortunately, because platelets have such a short shelf life, I think everyone is aware that platelets only live for five days. We can only keep a platelet product for five days on the shelf. But what most people aren't aware of, Scott, is that because of all the testing that we have to do of the platelet product, prior to the, them actually being on the shelf, we really only have a three-day shelf life in the United States for platelet products. We're, we're talking a very limited interval. So it, <clears throat> pardon me, <clears throat> start that again. We really only have a very limited interval. So it is very common for that group A patient to, for us to get a call for group A platelets for a particular patient and us not to have group A platelets on the shelf. And that's just one example. Obviously there are, there are any, any other combination of ABO as well. So blood bankers historically and for decades have crossed ABO boundaries with platelet transfusions and with seemingly minimal effects. Um, in other words, giving that group A patient a unit of group O platelets that we have on the shelf, just for example. And, and that's been done really for decades and without, honestly, without a lot of interaction with clinicians. I'm guessing, Scott, you've gotten very few calls uh, saying, um, oh, well, we, you know, we were trying to give your group A patient some platelets. We don't have any group A. We're going to give them group O. I'm guessing you don't get a lot of calls like that. Is that a correct statement? It's so funny because <laughs> almost all of it is just, it just shows up and yes. it's, it's up for you to figure out, is this okay or not? And it yeah. actually leads us to the next question, which is all of a sudden in our massive transfusion and stat blood packs we were getting from blood bank maybe like uh -huh. five years ago, uh, instead of the universal donor in, in the you know vernacular I was taught in medical school uh, for plasma, which yeah. was, you know, we were getting these AB plasma forever. And then all of a sudden we started getting type A plasma showing up. And I'm like, <laughs> the first time it happened, no one said a word to me. And I'm like, oh my God, they screwed up. This can't be in there. We don't know this patient's blood type yet. Uh, talk to me about that. When did this happen? And, and is this okay? I'll be happy to talk to you about it. There's There's been a lot of back and forth about this, uh, and uh, it is becoming much more common in recent years to, to use group A plasma uh, instead of group AB plasma as the so-called, and I really don't say that, I really wouldn't say that anyone calls it universal plasma because it's not, obviously, but as the first choice in uh, in giving to patients who have unknown ABO types. And there, there's a lot of reasons for that, but a lot of it goes back to something that you've discussed previously in terms of the proper trial and the, the kind of balanced resuscitation that, that, is, uh, that has become the standard of care for trauma. As that became more and more accepted, more and more plasma, plasma was getting used. And unfortunately, we have a population genetics problem. And that population genetics problem is that only 4% of our blood donors only 4% of people in the United States around the world are group AB. And when all of a sudden you have a massive increase in the demand for quote unquote universal AB plasma, suddenly we're in a situation where we've got 4% of the population that's AB and hospitals are ordering 25% of their plasma orders as AB plasma, especially trauma centers. That makes it impossible for blood banks to keep up with that demand. 
So a number of years ago, several centers started looking at using group A plasma instead of group O. Now, you guys can do the math. If you look at the, if you look again at population genetics, you would know that group A plasma is compatible with 85% of people in the population. So that may, that's the group A people and the group O people. No problem with giving them group A plasma. However, there's about 15% of the population that are group B and AB that could potentially have a problem with getting group A plasma. Um, so what, what people started doing is using that as a bridge product. In other words, when we don't know the type, let's use group A, 85% of the time it's going to be okay. 15% of the time it's not. Now, quite honestly, I think that was a really huge leap of faith for these centers to assume that, that patients would do just fine. But it goes back, Scott, to what I was telling you before about how we've crossed ABO boundaries with platelet transfusions for decades with seemingly no ill effects or very uncommon ill effects. The idea simply that when, well, when we give a group A, when we give a group B patient group A platelets, they do fine. And platelets, if you look at them volume wise, they have about the same amount of plasma as a unit of, of fresh frozen plasma. So let's see how that works. So they did it. It, it turned out that they, they didn't find any, any hemolytic transfusion reactions, even in those incompatible people. And there's a lot of reasons for that, Scott. We're, we don't have time, I don't think, to go into all the details. But the bottom line with this is that the anti-B that's in a unit of group A plasma, because of the donor population that gives it, usually is not strong enough to cause a problem, especially when it's diluted in all the fluids that are going in during a, during a trauma situation. There you go. All right. I think the last question, in the interest of time, will be your stance on reversal for procedures of both the patient's INR and their patients with borderline platelet counts. And, you know, if you consider yourself an evidence-based practitioner working in an ICU, it's just banging your head against the wall constantly as you're being asked by other services to reverse patients. They want the INR down to 1.0. I'm not physically capable of making that happen very often. <laughs> um, you know, and uh, conditions where you just know the patient's not going to bleed. They're having you give multiple transfusions of both plasma and platelets. Just give us a very general uh, idea of your stance on this. It's pretty simple, really, Scott. And I, I did a podcast on on this on this on uh, the plasma correction in particular. So I, I I would refer people to to my site to to listen to that. But the bottom line with this, Scott, is that um, physiologically, if you have an INR of 1.8 or so or below, you have adequate hemostasis. Uh, it, it may not be perfect, and if you look at the if you look at the coagulation factors, you'd see that they would be somewhat somewhat decreased. But coagulation status, hemostatically, you are fine. Uh, and trying to correct that, the problem with trying to quote unquote correct that is that it takes enormous amounts of plasma to make that INR move. It simply doesn't. It simply doesn't work. It's just. It's based on the the physiology and the and the way the coagulation system, uh, the way the coagulation system interacts with the tests. You're simply not going to make a difference. And further, in the few studies that have been done, which I will admit are mostly retrospective observational type studies, there has never been any hint that quote unquote trying to correct these patients either corrects them, makes a difference in their numbers, a or b causes any decrease in bleeding. So from my perspective, correcting, correcting low-grade coagulation, uh, coagulation test elevations is, is a, 
absolute waste of time and, and resources. The same thing is true with platelets, um, though the data is not as great with platelets. Um, I, I will say this, the one thing that you talked about banging your head against the wall, the one thing that drives me insane is when I get a call um, from someone who's trying to uh, get a platelet count, for example, over 50, over 50,000 before prior to a procedure. And I say, okay, well, what's the current platelet count? Well, it's 49. And I'm sitting there going, are you kidding me? Okay, well, let's just rerun the platelet count. And with lab error, chances are it'll be over 50 <laughs> this time. It realistically, again, the few studies that have been done have not shown any evidence that doing that, bumping that over a particular number makes any difference. I will say just as a last statement though, Scott, is that sometimes people are put in tough situations by national guidelines that are put out by their organizations. For example, uh, I don't want to pick on the interventional radiologists, but they have, they have something in their guidelines that before they do certain procedures, they want the INR less than 1.5. They even acknowledge that that is probably not attainable, but they put it in those standards and it makes it really difficult for clinicians that are practicing when they see that. Fair enough. All right. That was amazing. Uh, two more non-clinical questions to sum it up. Mm -hmm. One, what is your blood type? And two, what resources do you recommend for people in emergency medicine and critical care from the amazing set of resources you have on the Blood Bank Guy site? Well, first, I, I think I was born to be a, a blood banker because I am O negative, believe it or not. Um, <laughs> so, for, so from the womb, I was I was supposed to be a blood banker. So, uh, and what that means is that I'm in the I'm in the donor chair every 56 days or so, uh, donating my red cells, and, nice. and I'm happy to do it. Um, the second thing I would say is that in terms of resources on the Blood Bank Guy website. Most of what is there is targeted towards laboratory folks. There's there's no getting around that. That's the audience that I'm that I'm trying to shoot for. However, there there are a couple of things that you you might find useful on the site. In particular, the glossary that's there. Blood bankers, we're weird, compulsive people, and we love to use phrases and words that nobody understands. But I'm not sure why. We think it makes us sound smarter or something. I don't know. But if you find yourself hearing something from a blood banker and you go, I don't know what the heck they just said. Many of those things you'll find in the glossary on on the Blood Bank Guy website. Um, in addition, the podcasts that I do uh, will sometimes touch on emergency medicine, critical care type issues and the blog posts as well. For example, I did a long blog post on the group A plasma issue in uh, in trauma situations that that covers a lot a lot more than what I was able to talk about today. And willing to all of that. Can't thank you enough. Fantastic. And uh, people should start listening to the podcast because I listen to every relevant episode and I find it to just be amazing. Thank you, Scott. I really appreciate that. Well, there you go, folks. Put your questions and comments at mcrit.org slash 202. And there as well, you will find uh, links to all the things we mentioned and uh, the top three episodes I think you should listen to on Blood Bank Essentials immediately to get more wonderful stuff from Joe. And uh, as well, uh, one week before the airing of this episode, I actually uh, recorded an episode for Joe's podcast, and you could listen to that as well. It's totally relevant to EM and critical care, uh, even though most of the questions were designed for blood bankers. So I think you may like that as well. So check it out. And uh, I will talk to you soon. Scott Weingart for the MCRIP podcast saying bye-bye. <laughs>